All right, before I get to my next guest, Dr. Bob Jones IV, please check out our friends at the Ben Hogan Golf Equipment Company. Now, folks, if you haven't hit Ben Hogan Irons since maybe the 80s or the 90s, do yourself a favor. They've got a great demo program. Get a demo iron from either their Fort Worth, PTX, new PTX Pro, or Edge Irons. And they've got a great fitting system right on their website as well to let you know which one of those irons suits your game. So get a demo from one of them. Go out on the range and compare it to whatever it is you have. All Ben Hogan irons and wedges are handcrafted one at a time in their Fort Worth, Texas factory. So no mass production, no shortcuts. Now you can order custom-made irons, wedges, hybrids by going online to BenHoganGolf.com. And they're going to build those clubs to your specifications. And best of all, charge you a fraction of the typical retail price. Check out their complete line. Again, a forged irons, wedges, utility irons, hybrids, bags, accessories, and their new GS53 driver and fairway woods. Go check it out by going online to BenHoganGolf.com. All right, now back in making his sixth appearance with me here on the French Lick Resort guest line is Dr. Bob Jones IV. Doc is the grandson of Bobby Jones. He was born and raised in Pittsfield, Massachusetts, which is located in the very northwest part of the state, right near the New York state line. Now lives here just northeast of Atlanta. Doc has a bachelor's degree in English literature, a master's in divinity, and a doctorate in clinical psychology. He's working now as a sports psychologist. It's been wonderful getting to know Doc over the last few years. There's something very spiritual about spending time with Doc that has stayed with me since the very first time he was on the show. Had the privilege of meeting Doc in person for the first time a few weeks ago, right after he hit the ceremonial first tee shot at the Tour Championship. And oh, by the way, striped it right down the middle, right where any of the players would gladly have walked out and dropped their ball if they'd have had that opportunity. I'm very excited he is back with me again tonight here on Next on the Tee. Good evening, Doc. How are you? Good evening, good evening, Chris. Uh, what, you're so kind. What you probably meant to say is, if the players had walked 80 yards forward, they would probably be pleased to drop it on that line. <laughs> but, but hey, I'll take it. I'll take it. You know. I, no, and I don't. And, I, and I, you're very humble, and I'm not exaggerating because you stepped up and hit that ball as, as good as anybody could have wanted to hit that opening tee shot. And 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 just on and on top of that, Doc, I gotta ask you. I mean, we talked about this for a moment uh, when, when we got to uh, to meet, but you're doing that in front of the governor, the mayor, you know, stands full of, you know, fans, people on either sure. side of the T. That's not easy. What's it like dealing with that kind of pressure? Well, you know, that's an interesting question because ultimately, Chris, pressure is actually uh, a state of mind in the sense that I mean, it's a totally internal phenomenon. First of all, you had to look at it from from the perspective that I had. Really, uh, the the only thing I had to do was just put the club face on the ball. As long as I just put the club face on the ball, then everything is going to be fine and everybody's going to be happy. So that takes a lot of pressure off right there. The other thing was I already had my bailout plan. If I had cold-topped it, I was just going to just reach down, get my tee, and just say, wow, the course is going to play long today and be done with it. <laughs> so, you know, <laughs> so, I mean, really, the the pressure is almost totally imaginary in that situation. And it's just <laughs> a lot of fun. And we're there to honor. Uh, we're there to honor all this great stuff that's gone on at East Lake with their Junior Golf Foundation and everything that they've done for that local community. I mean, it is such a feel-good opportunity that I, I was actually I was actually chomping at the bit to get out there and do it. And what was even more amazing is that young girl 
who came out after me and uh, and just absolutely striped it. Now, you want to put pressure on me. You have me hit after her, and that would have put pressure on <laughs> No doubt. I, I, I want to spend our time tonight. We, we, we do a lot, you know, when you come on the show, but I, I think not, yeah. not enough people talk about you and your life. There's a lot talked about your grandfather and your father, but there's really not a lot yes. talked about what it was like for you. So um, I want to talk about what it was like growing up a Jones, you know, in the shadow of your grandfather and your father. That had to be difficult. It was. It was. Uh, it was very difficult. You know. For example, I remember when I went to the Masters for the first time, and uh, it was one of those days. Uh, I was there. It was 1970. I was 12 years old, and uh, I remember. Uh, I remember I was wearing long trousers and uh, a white golf shirt, and. I remember saying to my dad, Dad, I don't get it. Some of the other member kids are wearing uh, shorts. Why can't I wear shorts? And dad said, well, son, their name isn't Robert Tyre Jones. And so, you know, there was always an awareness of who my grandfather was and what he had done. And, and essentially, we were brought up, at least in the, when we were around the golf world, to always assume that somebody was watching everything we did, uh, which in that environment is probably a healthy paranoia. Um, so it was a very difficult thing to grow up with. When I started playing golf, it was even more difficult because people expected me, even as a ranked beginner, to basically go out and shoot 68. And I mean, I could do that, but then I'd probably shoot 67 or 65 on the back nine. And that was just <laughs> something that people, yeah, I mean, that was just something that people weren't really expecting. And for a long time for me, uh, being Bob Jones the fourth, while I loved my grandfather dearly, and of course, uh, I, I loved my dad, uh, we just lost him way too early. Uh, but for a long time for me, being Bob Jones the fourth was 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 an incredibly oppressive thing. And it's really been only in about the last 15, 16 years that I have finally realized that this is this is actually a great blessing because, you know, it's 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 given me the opportunity to go to a lot of places, meet a lot of people, share things that are important to me, both in terms of golf, in terms of faith, in terms of, well, all sorts of things, with people that I would never have had the opportunity to meet otherwise. And so in that sense, uh, now, as I've gotten older, I've realized uh, it's actually quite a blessing. But for a law, but, but I really had to work through a lot to get to that point. Um, so that's, that's kind of the, that's kind of the short answer. It only took me about eight minutes to say it. So. <laughs> and, and, and doc, you know, for, for those that don't know, you, you lost your grandfather, you're still a young man and it was, was in very short order that you lost your father right after that. So yes, you're still a, two, year, two years, you're still al like two years teenager. almost to the day. I was, I was 16 years old when my dad died. And so you, I, uh, you know, you know, three years later, after he died, uh, we flew to Columbus, Ohio, for the first memorial tournament, and uh, Jack Nicholas uh, had asked if I would say a few words, 
Now, I'm a 19-year-old kid. I, I, I like to think I'm a reasonably decent speaker now, but at 19, uh, not so much. And they got me out there, and I thought it was just me. And it turned out there was a whole host of people that were supposed to speak. One of them was Bob Hope. The other uh, was Joe Dye, who nobody probably knows about anymore, but Joe Dye for a long time was executive director of the USGA and then later became executive director of the PGA, what is now the PGA Tour. Joe Dye was probably uh, like a god figure in the game of golf and certainly like one of the people that I just absolutely looked up to. And Joe got up there and gave this incredibly witty speech about how he was uh, uh, he was a young reporter in 1930 and was covering my grandfather when he came to Marion for the for the amateur and how my grandfather walked into the hotel Excelsior in Philadelphia and the bag boy dropped my grandfather's suitcase and the smell of corn whiskey came from and a bro sound of broken glass the smell of whiskey filled the lobby. And Joe Dye immediately, he said, and at that point, I immediately knew that demigods do not carry demijohns. And everybody <laughs> just laughed. And they sat down. He just sits down after that. And, and, they come, and Jack says to me, now, Bob Jones IV would like to say a few words. And I got up there, and I mean, it was like, how do you follow that? <laughs> and uh, I think I said something in Maine, and I worked off the premise that if you can't be good, be brief. <laughs> so, but it was yeah. uh, that was my starting point. That was my starting point. So, after that starting point, it's you know I guess that's why probably hitting the ceremonial tee shot wasn't much of a problem. I had to follow Joe Die at 19 years old. That was pressure. <laughs> Yeah, but you know, to to that end, Doc. I mean, suddenly you're you're the next Jones, but you're 16 years old. You're 16, yes. so you carried that for a long time until you were reasonable age to understand what was going on. So were you were you resentful? Were were you shy and timid about it? How did you deal from the teens to the 20s to the 30s with carrying all that by yourself? Well, you know. Um I think part of it came out of the fact that at least until the time I was, uh, let's see, 1984, I would have been 27. I think because one of the ways I dealt with it was I became very, very well acquainted uh, with, um, with a great teacher, uh, and that was Teacher Scotch, and uh, I drank a lot. And, because, and I think to a large extent, that was because this was just an extremely overwhelming thing. And then finally, at age 27, I got at least a, a little bit of sense in my head, and I realized, you know, if I don't get a grip on this thing, uh, it's going to kill me. And also, too, that actually I wasn't getting any better as a person. And so, you know, through the grace of God and a lot of friends, I was able to, uh, I was able to take my last drink on October the 28th of 1980, uh, 1984. So, um, you know, that was the start. And then after that, I spent a lot of time really coming to grips with who my grandfather was. And, and I realized that he was a really great man, but he was not a perfect man. And, and, and to, a, to a certain extent, I realized that that made him actually more great, is that he wasn't a perfect guy. And that he did have his flaws. I mean, he had a horrible temper, always did. He never really bore fools graciously. 
And yet he was a very kind man. Uh, he was, I mean, he was uh, a very gentle man. And that was through a lot of discipline uh, on his own. And, and, and I think as I've come to understand that, and I've come to see him as a real flesh and blood person, um, it, it's actually probably made me love him more than when I was seeing him through the idealized eyes of childhood. Doc, I, I read a story about your grandfather that he had tried to coach your father, and he was hoping that your father would get far enough in the U.S. amateur so that he could get invited to the 1960 Masters. Unfortunately, he drew Jack Nicklaus in the first round of that amateur, who would obviously go on to win that year. But is that an accurate story? Was he trying to coach that your is dad? A, that is an absolutely along? that is an absolutely true story, and you know they were totally convinced that the only thing that could be a problem is if uh, my grandfather, if, if my father were to face Jack Nicklaus in either the first or the second round. But they figured, you know, what are the odds of that? One in a, one in 128. But what I've always said is, you know, if you actually do draw Jack Nicklaus in the first round, those odds drop to like one to one. And <laughs> dad, I asked my dad, I asked my dad at the time, I said, Dad, I said, how did you know, when did you first know you were in trouble? And Dad said, I'll tell you what, they were playing at the Broadmoor that year. And Dad said, I got on the first tee, and I took my my driver out, and I hit my tee shot out there. And it was a beautiful tee shot, about 265 yards with just a little bit of a fade. And he said, Jack got up with a three-wood. And he said, when Jack's ball went over mine, it was still going up. And he said, that's when I realized you can't spot somebody 70 yards and expect to beat them. You know, and that sort of reminded me of something. You know, we talk nowadays about how incredibly long the players are today, and, and they are. But, you know, one of the things we forget is that when Jack was a young man, he was unbelievably long, and he was doing it with basically wound Haskell balls and persimmon heads. Right. I mean, think, yeah, think about that. He was hitting right. the ball 290, 300 yards with Haskell balls and persimmon heads. And not only that, golf courses that were not manicured to the way they are today. So just that's always worth thinking about when you're really asking Indeed. the question, how really good Jack was. That's right. Doc, I want to switch gears just a little bit, and 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 you've got sure. a tremendous spirituality about you, and and I know you have a strong faith, and I was curious, like, when did you find that, and how were you able to kind of let that in and do such a great job like you do now, radiating it out? Well, I don't know that I do such a great job radiating it, radiating it out, but I certainly try. Uh, I first came to know Jesus as my Lord and Savior when I was 15 years old, and uh, I gone to see a Christian counselor and was having some, uh, just some issues, and he helped me sort them out. And one of the issues I realized was, is that I needed a savior. And, it, you know, I would love to say at that point that everything was just wonderful after that. But you, if you remember what I said about the years I drank, uh, that was after I was 15. Um, I, I've spent many years in ministry, although frankly I was not a good fit for it temperamentally. I think, um, but the thing that really brought me brought my faith into tremendous clarity was when my wife Mimi and I were dating. Uh, I remember one day she made some comment uh, about 
something and I said about the Bible and I said, well, geez, wait a minute, wait a minute. If I were to take what you're saying very, very seriously, I would have to think that you believe the Bible to be literally true. And Mimi just looked at me and she said, yeah, I do. And, you know, normally if somebody had said something like that to me, I would have said, I would have said, well, gosh, what's wrong with them? But when she said it, there was such a disarming honesty to how she said that. And I had such tremendous respect for her. It was the first time that I ever said to myself, gosh, I don't. I wonder what's wrong with me. And that's where I really started to really study the Bible and place myself under the authority of the Word of God. And that's where it really changed my life. And I mean, I don't, you know, I don't go out and thump the Bible at people, but since you asked, that's really what made the difference for me. And, um, you know, I, I just, uh, I, I love my wife, but more than anything else, I love God, and God has totally changed my life and has made it so much better than I could have ever dreamed. And, and I just, I want to share that with anybody that will listen. And uh, because it's, it's uh, because Good Lord, Chris, I'm alive. I'm here. We're having a conversation. Uh, and, and I'm not, you know, some tongue-chewing drunk. Life is good. Life is good. <laughs> and, it's yes, and, it's, it is. and it's because God changed my life. So for what you're doing now as a sports psychologist, talk about, uh -huh. you know, for, for those folks, whether they're, whether they're, you know, here in the Atlanta area or wherever they might be listening to the show tonight, Talk about the things sure. you're doing now, and if they if they need to reach out to you, whether it's for themselves, sure. their child, or whoever it might be that might need some help, how can they do that? Well, I work. I do work with a lot of juniors. Uh, I also work with a lot of business people who need to play golf uh, just as a part of what they do. And I also work with. I work with a lot of athletes all the way across the way. My approach to everybody is I I work off three things. I look at what their actual behaviors are, the physical side. I look at the cognitive side. What are they thinking? What, what What's going through their head while they're playing golf? How do they collect their information? And then thirdly, I look at managing emotions. How do we get them into an emotional comfort zone where they're not too amped up, but also not too like a bowl of jello? And those are the three things. And what I try to do is I try to look at each person and customize what I do for them uh, to to kind of fit what their needs are. Um, it, it's so each person uh, probably will will get exposed to each one of those three areas, but how much they're exposed to those areas will depend on what their particular needs are. Anybody that needs to reach me can find me at the Behavioral Institute of Atlanta in Sandy Springs. That's at www. B I A Georgia spelled out B I A Georgia spell a dot com, and or they can find me on my own my website which is drrobertjones.com. Um, I love working with people and I'm even available to work with groups. Uh, over the next few months, I'm going to be starting to work with the Grand Slam Golf Academy at the Bobby Jones Golf Course as well. So they'll be able to reach me through the Grand Slam Golf Academy at Bobby Jones Golf Course. So that's another way they can get me. So I'm around. <laughs> that's fantastic. 
<laughs> Doc, before I let you go, first of all, I, I, I have to say hello to you from my next guest, Tom Patry. He wanted me to pass along, uh, you know, his uh, good wishes to you. So he, he'll join me here in a minute. So I want to make sure I do that. Okay. Well, and, you know, uh, well, I guess Tom already knows I'm saying hi. So there you are. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. That's right. Doc, Doc, it's always such a privilege to get to spend some time with you. The time flies by so fast when you're a part it of the show. I hope you'll come back and join me again soon. All right, Chris. Thank you so much. Have a great evening. You do the same, Doc. Take care. All the best to you and your family. All right. You too. See you, Doc. That's the great Dr. Bob Jones the Fourth, and I and I tell you, folks, on a couple of things, and Bob, and and Doc is you know very humble. That golf swing on that first tee. I mean, I'm thinking you know to myself, I'd be lucky to get the ball off the ground, and he got stepped right up there just like it was nothing, and you know it wasn't 80 yards down the middle of the fairway. It was you know way down the fairway. I, I don't know how far it is. I'm not that familiar with East Lake, but it was it was probably every bit of 250, 260 down the fairway. And uh, that's why I say the players would have been glad to go out there and drop it and, and, and go from there. But on top of that, every time that you're in his presence, whether that's here with me talking to him over the phone uh, for the few minutes that I got to, to spend with him in person, there is a spirituality and a peace about Doc. And, and that spirituality does radiate from him. He's a wonderful man doing wonderful things. And uh, I, I can't thank him enough for his time tonight, and I certainly look forward to having him back on the show again real soon.